I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Anil Dash. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. So, sorry, we started a little late. I, I went back there and said, so what's the deal? When are we starting? And my husband said, as soon as you go up there, Amy. So, <laughs> I want to thank you all for coming. Um, it's a thrill and an honor to have Krista and Anil here this evening. And I will tell you that I have been listening to her since, I told you last night, 2002, but you weren't on air then. It's 2003, right? <laughs> so since 2003, in my wildest imagination, I never thought I would be at the Avalon Theater introducing Krista this evening. So it is quite an honor. Um, the program tonight is sponsored by the Aspen Y Fellows. And um, anybody can become a member. Right now, it's a group of 200 of us from the Midshore that contribute to the Aspen Institute, which is located in Washington, D.C., and Aspen, Colorado. And we all share the mission of uh, value-based leadership and finding common ground to make the world a better place. The Eastern Shore is fortunate to have the Y Aspen uh, campus out in uh, Y Mills, Maryland, And every month, we are also blessed to hear national and international leaders address critical issues of our time. So at the end of tonight, Judy Price will be out in the um, the lobby, and she'd be happy to take your money to join. (laughs) I'm taking over your part on that, Phil. (laughs) But it's a great organization, and it attracts a lot of um, very interesting people, uh, people that are curious about life and, um, and again, wanting to make the world a better place. So our foundation, my husband and I, Dock Street Foundation, collaborated with the Aspen Y Fellows to bring Krista and Anil here tonight. We had a program last night at the, um, at the uh, Aspen Y Institute with uh, Mark Steiner, who came from Baltimore to interview Krista and about her book, Becoming Wise, which many of you have a copy of. So I'm told Lily, the senior producer, that I would make this brief. Okay, so <laughs> not too much longer, but <laughs> say no. So... Um, Krista and Trent Gillis the, um, and Lily Percy, Maya Harrell, and um, where's Chris? Where's Chris? Chris Teagle. All traveled from Minneapolis yesterday to be here with us. Um, Krista is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, New York Times bestseller. She's the 2014 recipient of the National Humanities Medal from the White House for thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. Um, I always describe her program to people who have, you know, I'm appalled, never listened to it, um, as you feel like you're, when you listen to her program, you feel like you're a voyeur in somebody's living room listening to two highly enlightened individuals having a civil discourse, which we all welcome tonight, (laughs) right? And I literally feel like I'm in my living room because this furniture and the rug is from our house. (laughs) 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 And we also are privileged to have Anil Dash, who has joined us from New York. He's a New York-based tech entrepreneur, an advocate, and a writer working to make technology in the tech industry more humane, inclusive, and ethical.
in 2013, Time Magazine um, uh, named at Anil Dash one of the best accounts on Twitter to follow. And it's the only account, Twitter account, to be retweeted by the White House, <laughs> Prince, and Bill Gates. So there's a ton of diversity there. Right? Thank you. And I have something that I, I think was really interesting that I, I read about Anil. He made a statement on his website that he's never played a round of golf, drank a cup of coffee, or graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know why. That made me feel so inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> so I'm almost finished. And I will tell you that everybody, it's obvious we haven't had the best year in journalism with integrity. Um, but I can guarantee the next hour and a half is going to be um, thoughtful and reflective. And as I mentioned earlier, we will see what it is to be a true journalist with, with great integrity and what it is to witness civil discourse. So thank you for coming, you all. So um, thank you, Amy, and Amy and her partner in crime, Richard Marks, uh, started talking about this, I don't know, I think a couple years ago, and it's amazing that we are now here, and the conversation last night was wonderful. Um, it's one of these, it's a moment where we've all been, I think, I really do think all, on every side of everything, been kind of cracked open. We are awake in a new way, and in that sense, it's a moment of possibility and i really felt that searching in the in the room last night and self searching um, so i was thinking uh, i want to say again the aspen Y fellows thank you to the aspen Y fellows and to the avalon theater um, so the a long a long long time ago when we set the title for tonight it was emerging technologies and old fashioned physics uh, old fashioned civics <laughs> and i was thinking today that we should rename it Emerging technologies and their interaction with emerging politics and the civics we have. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe the civics we need. I'll take it. (laughs) Okay, so that's where we're going to go. I want to, you know, it's been on my mind this past year and even more intensely these past weeks that the work of reweaving common life, and not just that, I think partly because of technology, figuring out what common life means and how it works in the 21st century was going to be there for us uh, on November 9th, whoever won the election. And, and now we're on the other side of that. And what's exciting about having Anil Dash here tonight is that he has been thinking and talking and advocating for this for a very long time. Um, you know, t- t- uh, Amy gave you a good description of what he does. You know, just add a few things. He's been on the Internet since before the web and on social media and social networking since before we had those phrases. He's been a blogging pioneer since before the word blogging took hold. Uh, and that was 1999, did you start blogging? I, I started in 99, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's had a front row seat on uh, the people and the, and the organizations that invented a lot of the early social media and social networking tools. Um, I think these lines of his writing exemplify the moral imagination and social passion that he brings to the world of technology, which in fact is a world we all have a stake in, whether we do code or not. Hmm. Um, He wrote, we're not nerds or outsiders or underdogs anymore. 
What we do and what we make shapes culture and society, deeply influencing everything from artistic expression to policy and regulation to the way we see our friends, families, and selves. But we haven't taken responsibility for ourselves in a manner that befits the wealthiest and most powerful industry that's ever been created. We fancy ourselves outlaws. We fancy ourselves outlaws while we shape laws and consider ourselves disruptive without sufficient consideration for the people and institutions we disrupt. We have to do better, and we will. Um, so, you know, I, I start most of my conversations with a question, with an inquiry about the religious or spiritual background of mm. someone's childhood. Um, I find everybody has a, an interesting story to that question, wherever they are on that spectrum. But also it's a place where a lot of questions live. Yeah. Um, you wrote this interesting piece uh, uh, in 2014 called Being Less of a Jerk About Faith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you, and you said... It was aspirational. Is that, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you said that you're not, you're not a religious person at this mm. point in your life, and there's a lot that you find to be concerned about, about organized religion. But you also said many of the ideas that are important to you, like forgiveness and atonement, detachment and grace, kindness and kinship, confuse people when you use them in a secular context. Mm. And I did wonder... Um, about how the background of your childhood, including however you would describe this, its spiritual background, yeah. which was Hindu, you know, formed your commitment to some such things, the, the passion you hold for such words and virtues. You know, I think my answer to that question has probably changed since I have a five-year-old son, and, and you know, of course, parenthood grows you up in a lot of ways. Um, and my introduction to sort of organized religion and to faith was that um, almost, I think, Within a month of when I was born, um, my parents, especially my father, co-founded the Hindu temple that we went to growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a very uh, a conventional tradition in, in Hinduism of having a, um, an altar in the home, which is actually where you do most of your practice. But the, the function of the public community temple is to bring a community together like all houses of worship. And, um, and it was interesting because... Even to this day, I wouldn't consider my father very religious. Um, yet he was, along with basically three other um, families, the, the sort of the co-founders of this temple that convened the entire community. And because um, there's this sort of delightful haphazardness to all South Asian culture, um, we had uh, obviously Hindu folks there. We had Jain uh, uh, members, uh, uh, Muslim, Sikh, uh, Christian, um, the head of our Sunday school was a Jewish woman. Uh, we, uh, I mean, it was, and it was not, and it wasn't some sort of, you know, let's make a concerted effort at being broadly inclusive. It was like, well, that's who's around and who wants to eat the good food. Um, yeah. and, and, and so that was the, the context in which I grew up. And the, um, and the trappings of the faith, I think, were, um, to me, very clearly made up, right? Because when we... When I was a kid, the, the, this actually was really common in India, but it was within the sort of young diaspora in the U.S. was starting to become popular, was there were comic books explaining parts of the Mahabharat, or there were like these like third-generation VHS video copies of you know, uh, Indian uh, televised versions of you know, the Gita or something like that. So it was this like, very weird pop culture version, and you see this... like. Low production value guy with a paper mache <laughs> monkey hat on, 
and you're not like, well, that's clearly true. Like that's the faith. Like that's what really happened. You're like, this, they're putting on a show, right? And and not in a bad way. It wasn't I never felt that was dismissive or negative or, or uh, you know, what sounds literally sacrilegious. But it was it was to me it was this sort of like, well, these are stories that they're telling for a reason. Let me pay attention to the story. And the stories were great. I mean, they're you know they're epics. And so um, that was my understanding of what all faiths were. It, it was never um, something to be taken very literally. It was these are stories, and hopefully they help you. Uh, which turns out is actually a really, uh, to me, a very healthy way to process these things, and made me much more interested and curious about other faiths. But there was no, interestingly to me, there was no uh, negative or threatening or restrictive, uh, you know aspects of faith for me growing up. There was no repercussions for bad choices based in faith. Mm. It mm. was just, you know, sometimes we go, you know, go downstairs in our house and we have the little altar and we light some uh, uh, lamps and we sing some songs that I didn't know and understand. And of course they're in Sanskrit <laughs> so nobody understands them. And then you, uh, you know, and then you have some fruit and there you're done. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. Uh, and so it wasn't some great schism to be like, well, I don't really believe the monkey headed yeah. guy is real. And then we just like, okay, he's probably not. But, um, you know, our house still, like, I don't identify as being a member of any faith, but, like, we've got a lot of Ganeshas around because it's like, who doesn't want to have, like, for my five year old son, like, a fun, dancing, elephant headed guy? <laughs> I don't know. It's probably not the most enlightened view of faith, but that was mine. Well, okay, so something you're known for um, inside your industry in Silicon Valley is um, knowing how systems work. And you've said, you know, what, and you've said you're almost kind of obsessed about this. Yeah. Whether it's the way people adopt new technologies or the ways government, governments regulate markets or the ways new ideas spring up in popular culture. So, uh, so I'm curious if you, how do you trace that? Where did, where does that come from in you? Or when did you, when did it surface? Um, you know, I, I got, um, my first computer in the household, we had a Commodore computer when I was five years old, my father brought home for us to tinker on. And um, so I started coding when I was five. And my, as my son has done too, it's like, well, yeah. these things must be contagious. <laughs> and uh, what, what became, you know, my impression of what a computer was, was a tool you used to create and not to consume. Mm. And I think that mm. influenced my view of what everything else was, right? So if I saw, you know, you see a magazine, we don't, to often enough teach our kids that's something you create. We teach them something you consume. Mm-hmm. And in this one narrow area, I'd come to understand it as a tool of expression as opposed to a tool of consumption. And, um, and I think that sort of cracked open a wider view where I started to see a book or a, a movie or a TV show as a thing that maybe I could make as opposed to something I would just consume. Mm-hmm. And that stayed with me. And it's interesting because that idea of the of di- the digital realm as a creative and expressive outlet has sort of waxed and waned over the years. In the, you know, the early eighties when I was getting into it, that was very common. That sort of retreated into the rise of the sort of like, you know, well, you're going to get a word processing program and that's what you do on yeah. your computer. Uh, and then the internet flourished and the web came along and then it was sort of this creative and expressive thing for a brief window. Mm-hmm. And then the sort of door closed shut on that again. I'm hoping there's another turn to the cycle. Um, but that was the that was the insight for me, and then I started to see kind of the whole rest of the world through that lens. I mean, I think um, I always have a sweet spot in my heart for Minneapolis because I'm a huge Prince fan. Yes, and um, <laughs> his his music to me was very different. I mean, you know, I think the pop culture view was here's this 
transgressive, really interesting, like playing with identity kind of artist, and obviously brilliant musical talent. But as a as a you know like basically a kid and seeing this, what I saw was I heard the drum machines at the beginning of 1999 or when Doves Cry, and I knew this was somebody using a computer, which is what the drum machine was, and programming it to create something that nobody else could, so he could do the whole thing himself. Mm-hmm. And he did play every instrument and record it all himself and controlled the recording console, and that was what he taught himself in high school. And as a high schooler, I felt like I want to master all the tools I need to express myself Mm. in the ways I can. And then I started seeing that pattern repeating, and I saw, like, I don't want to diminish, like, these brilliant artists as, like, you're a hardware hacker, but I think, you know, it is true that in addition to being a a virtuoso guitarist, Jimi Hendrix you know, helped design the pedals that made the distortion sounds that were his signature guitar sounds. And that um, Stevie Wonder had one of the first clavinet keyboards, and the reason those percussive notes at the beginning of Superstition sound the way they do is so because he had this hardware nobody else had, right? He had this device that he could hear and unlock that there was something else in it, and then, of course, had mastered the studio, the meta technology, everything, not just the instruments, but everything around it to where he could record, you know, on Superstition, Stevie's playing the drums and the keyboards and doing the vocals, everything but the horns, basically. And that is a mastery of technology in service of expression. Right. And through that lens, I came to understand that newspapers were that, that um, the, you know, low fidelity uh, home, homemade broadcasts that sort of presaged YouTube that people were doing on public access was that same thing. That all these things, are, that hip-hop music, which I loved, was people taking the tools they had and using technology in new ways to express themselves. And that was the lens that sort of revealed the whole rest of the world, or at least where the media and entertainment and communications world was headed. It's, and it's, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's a subtle but uh, really dramatic shift from seeing these as tools to seeing them as things that are taking over our lives, which mm-hmm. is how I think people experience them. Yeah. I mean, also, just, it's hard for us to take in, I think, how young this industry is, like mm-hmm. how quickly this has all happened. I have to tell you, when I was researching you, um, I found an interview that you did in 2007 with your wife, Elena Brown, mm. who's also in the industry. And the interviewer asked you, are you going to buy an iPhone you're talking about your iPod Nano a lot in that interview. And you said, probably not. I love the idea of a common platform for portable hackery, but I hate phones. <laughs> mm. um, and she said, and your, your wife says, no, 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 no phone. I s- assume you have an iPhone now? I do, do have okay, an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> you can't resist. I mean, come on. But I, so, so I think that's important perspective. Um, I held out for a long time, though. Did you? Yeah. yeah. I did, too. I'm like you. Mm. <laughs> um, I think it's important perspective. Uh, so that I think it helps explain. I mean, you are uh, you are a, a, a critic on the inside, right? You were pointing out contradictions and flaws in the tech industry at this stage, um, and I think that you know it's good for us all to step back and realize this has happened so quickly. And unfortunately, we're we're not doing the work of discernment in advance. We're doing mm-hmm. it after the fact, which is how humans tend to function. <laughs> Um, right, so you say no, nobody in your industry is saying I'm setting out to make the patriarchy worse. I'm setting out to. I'm saying I'm a rebel. I, I, but I real, take it back. Some are now. Some are, so that's okay. the innovation right, that we okay. have. We you have know, broken the seal on that. They're now. not that's saying great. I'm being a rebel, but but I'm acting like a robber baron. That's another way you've talked about it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, they're, they're saying I'm making a tool, mm-hmm. and you're saying. That's not good enough anymore. Yeah. You know, we bake our values into the choices we make when we design these tools. And 
The only reason I know that is because um, I screwed it up so many times and got it wrong for a long time. You know, my um, the sort of turning point in my career uh, about a dozen years ago was I was building some of the early um, blogging and social networking, social media tools. And the, the, the tools that uh, my friends and I built were used to um, publish and launch, you know, Gawker and Huffington Post and many of these early blogs that, you know, became sort of seminal to the medium. And um, it was interesting because there were hints all along that the, the, the choices we made in, like on a whiteboard in our meeting room had implications. So, for example, there's a box you type in, just like when you write an email, you know, the box you type in when you write a message. And we would make the box bigger um, in the publishing tool and the posts on Gawker and on Huffington Post would get longer. Right. Mm, and right. we see this today where anybody who's used Instagram, you see yourself, you see people framing their photo to be square because it's going to be shared in a square format, even though the phone itself can take, you know, a rectangular photo and every other photo over the last century has been a certain other shape. And here we are making this adjustment. And so, and those are the very superficial things, right? The size and shape and, and, and dimensions of something. But I never connected the dots that, well, we have complete control over exactly how many words a journalist uses in writing a story by changing things that are arbitrary variables for us. And yet we would not connect the dots all the way through into, well, the choices we make about how communities work online, how people respond to each other, Mm -hmm. how accountable they are to each other. Those would have social impacts, too. Mm -hmm. But at that point, suddenly we would divest ourselves of responsibility. And, and it kept coming up. I mean, I could not have gotten it more wrong for longer than I did without it being just too painfully obvious. But we would do, you know, at the early days, you were, this is sort of right as Facebook was launching and things like that. We were all collectively trying to explain as a community why social media or social networking was valuable. And we'd say, listen, people are meeting their friends and, and you know, meeting uh, um, potential spouses and partners and they're... Uh, discovering new opportunities for their careers and jobs. And we would sort of, and all these things are true. I mean, everybody's seen these effects now. And you say, wow, they're, you know, you're meeting the like-minded people, and that's great. And then we had the, the sort of prototype versions of the harassment and um, you know, abuse that we see online in massive scale today. And we would, you know, in the same breath, say, well, that's not our fault. That's just the tools. They're neutral Right. No responsibility yeah. for that. That's not our fault. Humans are going to be bad, how, no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And um, and I mean, I was that person. And and you know, it. I started to sort of wake up after a while, and especially as I started working more closely in the policy world and people in any realm outside of technology in the bubble of Silicon Valley. Um, and then you you know, ironically, years after that, you know, one of the first times that I was what they call doxed when they publish your private information, you know, like your address and things online. Um, the guy who did it did it on a, a platform, a tool that I'd built. Um, and uh, I had already sort of somewhat seen the light of the implications of our choices, but it uh, drove it home in a newly clear way yeah. that uh, maybe some of the choices I had made uh, were not the right ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting this moment we inhabit. You know, we, we now say, and I, I think this is true, that we have a fifth estate as well as a fourth estate. Mm. This new sphere, which is public life, uh, whether, it does not, whether it set out to be or not, which is highly influential um, and has been incredibly influential in a presidential election now. Yeah. Um, as a journalist, I, I see a lot of actually consonance between this kind of moral challenge that tech, not tech has and the moral challenge that journalism has. And also, they got all also mixed up and intertwined yeah, in this yeah. election. But I think the 
the notion that, you know, this is what we do. We tell the news. Mm-hmm. We report what happened today. Mm-hmm. This is the form we use. Um, but when it colludes with technology, mm-hmm. um, and when you see the tools themselves formed the craft, right? I mean, the 24-7 news yeah. cycle yeah. itself created the way journalism was functioning, mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. Yeah, very much so. Um, this is a really critical moment. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing to see, and of course, scary as well. Yeah, I mean, not to be glib, but it's even worse than you describe. Um, I think the, <laughs> the thing that I've seen in particular in online media was the world into which we started creating the social media tools around the, around the turn of the century. It makes me sound like I'm ancient. Yeah. Um, was I am ancient. The, the, um, the thing that jumped out to me was it was, a, it was not centralized. There were, everybody had an individual site. Um, uh, there was after the dot-com crash, there just wasn't any money being made in publishing or media online anyway, so there wasn't, it wasn't even a concern about how the advertising worked. And what happened in short order, in about half a decade, um, was, uh, you know, Google became the front door to all the content. You would go through one search engine and one news site, and that would be your entry point, more or less. And, uh, you know, one or two advertising platforms sort of took over, Facebook, yeah. Google. And, um, you know, without getting too technical about it, what they're further consolidating now is um, they're saying, well, we want to help the user experience for people that are on a phone, and it's very slow to load up all these different sites. So i tell you what, we'll just make it easy. We'll bring the content from all these different publishers, New York Times, BuzzFeed, and we'll put it all onto the Facebook platform or onto the Google platform and bring it you know, in, in, inside our walls and make it fast and easy for everybody to browse on their phones. And the, the people designing the products are well-intentioned. They, they're sincere in saying, we want to make it faster, easier, smoother. Now, incidentally, what happens with that is we're just going to remove all those other advertising and clutter things that are happening from all those companies that aren't Facebook or Google. And uh, if you want to still have ads on your site and still be sustainable as a publishing company, you can use our advertising networks. And isn't that convenient, right? And so the thing is, it is faster, it is better and easier for a user but you've centralized all the economic control into basically two publicly traded companies. And so all these other media companies are subsumed by them. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can say we have our own staff of journalists and our own writers and they're out there reporting and they're doing everything and we are the, you know, the masters of our own destiny. Um, but it, I don't think that the publishers understand um, the trade-off they're making. And it's because of the social positioning of technology is neutral. Right? So like, well, we're a neutral platform anybody can publish on. And then when you get to the current state of affairs, which is um, when you sell advertising, you are brokering attention. And so something that draws more attention and has more emotional appeal will be more successful and more lucrative. Then you say, well, some of the things that are most attention-getting aren't true. Yeah. And, and that's what's happened is, is yeah. the, the publishers that are publishing things that are known to be false, mm-hmm. right? not even the, not the gray area, the debatable... I'm saying the clearly, you know, the, the so moon is like square the, stuff. The Facebook fake news right. that we're hearing about now. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, the Facebook fake news. Um, I, I have to say, I, I thought it was just astonishing that Twitter played a role in the in a presidential election the way it did. I just, I, I, I don't know who would saw that coming. 
Um, and then, of course, the catastrophe of polling and the yeah. fact that you had algorithms, but people weren't making... Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I got to watch Twitter from before its public launch um, and knew, and knew the founders and, the, and a lot of the, you know, the leadership very well. Um, less so as there's been a lot of regime change there. Um, and <laughs> that's, I mean, that's to your but, point. But, but, These but, are now titans. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, they were very vocal about their role in Arab Spring. Yes. They were very ro- vocal about how everybody in, in Tahrir Square is using Twitter. Right. And um, when they at least nominally liked the results, then Twitter was taking the credit. And when they don't like the results, Twitter's a neutral tool. Right. And I've been that guy. Like, I'm not pointing fingers. Mm -hmm. But we did learn that lesson. And in their case, they have access to those of us that did it before. They could ask, well, how do you how do you manage this and what are our Mm -hmm. obligations? Um, But there's also a larger issue. I mean, Twitter's three thousand, four thousand employees now. Um, There's a there's a bigger challenge, which is the way economics works in Silicon Valley is. Um, to be a founder of a company, you essentially have to have a computer science degree and probably a computer science degree from Stanford. That's mm-hmm. the, the criteria. Uh, I mean, you know, that, that just is what it is. Like, you look statistically at who they fund. And, um, and then if you look at every other professional discipline, you look at somebody goes to law school, somebody goes to business school, journalism school, medical school, every single one of those disciplines has a professional society that sets standards and if you don't meet them, you can be disbarred. You can lose your medical license. This is an expectation about what you're supposed to do. And in the educational process, there's an extensive ethical curriculum. The bridge has to stay up. It can't fall down. Uh, you know, you, you, you have a historical tradition where in medicine, they're going back to Hippocrates. And in law, you're like talking about English common law that happened centuries ago. And then in computer science, they're sort of radically anti-historical. Right, not even a historical. Just like there is nothing before now, like we refuse to see. Like there is no before time, right. and there is zero ethical curriculum. You can get a, you know, top of the line, high, you know, the highest credential computer science degree from the most august institutions, with essentially having had zero ethics training, and that is in fact the most likely path to getting funded as a successful startup in Silicon Valley. Is that, do you think that's part, partly because, as we say, it, it's such a young field, mm-hmm. but then it's Some of it so is we haven't had centuries to mature. achieve this disproportionate authority and power. That's, that's right. I mean, the yeah. difference is in the centuries... So I haven't thought of it as a discipline yet. Right, right. In the centuries over which engineering was maturing or that medicine was maturing, they worked it out, right? There were a lot of like, yeah. you know, well, that, that's not actually medicine. That's just butchery. Let's clean that up, mm-hmm. right? But, mm-hmm. but at mm-hmm. that time, they weren't the wealthiest industry in the history of the world, so they had some time to work. Right, right. And we didn't do that. Yeah. And we, meanwhile, amassed all of that power and all that wealth. And I think that's the the reckoning that we haven't come to. And the stakes are incredibly, incredibly high. And as I said, it keeps being the sort of only taking credit for the positive sides, only taking the profits, Mm -hmm. and not really feeling any of the sense of responsibility. And then some of it is just, I'm not even, I'm not ascribing malice, I'm not ascribing malintent. But ignorance, and I was this person. I knew how to code. I didn't know the first thing about civics. I didn't know the first thing about policy. I didn't know the first thing about basic ethical training. Right? I had to learn all that on my own by screwing it up, and I, I grieve over the times I got it wrong. Mm-hmm. But at least I was sort of stuck around long enough to learn it. And now if I want to go and teach that 
to a 22 year old who's just coming out of their their CS program. They've learned, you know, they they are the the masters of this new technology. Um, they're not interested, right? They're not told that's something that makes sense and that you have to invest in and you have to pay attention to. And we are, um, I think, we're going to really face a reckoning as the economic impacts of that get stronger, as the cultural impacts of that get stronger. The idea that the halo around tech is the good guys is going to sustain seems increasingly unlikely. Hmm. Um, I want to read something that um, Dana Boyd wrote that you recommended. Hmm. Um, she's been on the show. She's fantastic. She's, she's another, you know, another person many people outside tech may not have heard of, but mm-hmm. she's, fan- she's a real uh, leader. And a great thinker. So she wrote, um, and as I want to say before this, again, I, th- I hold journalists accountable, and I think this exact same conversation has to happen among journalists mm-hmm. because there was a way, but they were, they, you know, you almost watched, you watched journalism not know how to, it was all so fast-breaking in the 2016 mm-hmm. election mm-hmm. Um, because something that you, so that you might morally want not to cover became news anyway. Mm-hmm. But still, I think there's a huge reckoning. But anyway, she wrote, I believe in data, but data itself has become a, uh, becomes spectacle. Um, I cannot believe that it has become acceptable for media entities to throw around polling data without any critique of the limits of that data to produce fancy visualizations which suggest that numbers are magical information. As you said, in the tech sector, we imagined that decentralized networks would bring people together for a healthier democracy. And there's that idealism that I think is yeah. really was there and is there in journalism, too. Yeah. And then she says, we hung on to this belief even as we saw that this wasn't playing out. We built the structures for hate to flow along the same pathways as knowledge. But we kept hoping that this wasn't really happening. We aided and abetted the media's suicide. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, I bet. A, I bet a lot of you saw on election night um, on the New York Times homepage their animated live real time data. Um, they had these needles waving back and forth on the meter. Um, which I think is probably the single most stressful implementation of technology I've ever seen in my life. Um, and, it, and what it was, and I, I, I always think of this actually with systems thinking in general in any institution. I always try to imagine the meeting, right? Backtrack a few months, a few, a few weeks to the, to the whiteboard meeting and a bunch of people with the, you know, empty coffee cups sitting around sketching out what this thing is going to be. And somebody says, and it's probably a young guy and he's probably a computer science grad, and he says, you know, we can get the data in real time. We can get, you know, polling data, and we can put it on the homepage, and it'll be incredibly compelling. Um, and an interesting thing, there's a weird, there, there's a, if you've seen The Matrix, they have that thing where they can sort of look at the green numbers trailing down the screen and see into it and see what it is. There's an aspect of that that comes from being um, a little bit of a coder. I'm a lousy programmer these days, but I can still kind of get by. And uh, if, you, if you look at the page that made up that New York Times homepage while they were doing that chart on election night, um, and there were these wild swings of the needle. For a long while, for hours, um, it was literally swinging back and forth between Clinton and Trump um, in real, t- real time, what they called real time. <laughs> Isn't and, that amazing how we've redefined time? Right. What a moment to be alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and if you look at the code of the page, um, that was all fake. The animation was created by a programmer at the Times 
the data only updated at most a few times a minute. Um, the needle never stopped moving. And, um, but I could see that. And I don't, I, what percentage of people that went to that page that night could see that? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe 1% maximum. And, 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 yeah. I, and it was so, one, it was causing undue stress to a lot of people. Yeah. Two, it was, as Dana said, making spectacle of data explicitly. Okay. Right? Yeah. And, um, and the animation was not true. It was not real. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean that there was a choice to put something false on their homepage when they are trying to decry all the falsity? What responsibility do they have? And would they have allowed falsity at, from any other public-facing part of their organization mm-hmm. except the technologists? Right. And again, neither, neither you nor I, I think, is assuming... That these are amoral people. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So what is the dynamic? They're nice people. Work? Well, well, a lot of them, you know, <laughs> let's assume They that. are. I've they been probably, in the room with yeah, them. They're nice. Yeah. And they're mission-driven people yeah. uh, who care about democracy. And love journalism. So, How could they be bad? So, what, so, I mean, I think we're talking about this, but what is it that's gone wrong there? What's the dynamic at play? Um, one is they don't know, right? I think ignorance is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so if, we have this tool that is everywhere that we have to use, but we, yeah. they, even those people um, at that level have no idea what they're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, so there's a couple parts of it. If you go out and you look at the, you know, today's hottest jobs, what are you all teaching your kids and your grandkids to go after? And they're like, data scientist and data journalist and all, right? Those are the jobs, right? They're high paying and they're not going to go away and you presumably can't outsource them, right? Um, and um, the, the interesting thing about that to me is the, uh, the data journalist, they're like, the credential they want is not, you went to the most, most august journalism school. It's like, what are your, what are your tech chops, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And again, in, 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 a, in a school they went to that probably doesn't have a, you know, an ethics curriculum at all and that doesn't have um, the experience to talk about these issues. The other thing is that even if they did, even if they're like, we really want to get the moral factors right here, what would you look at? A hundred years ago, ten years ago, hmm. these things weren't possible. There are some right. things that are new, yeah. and that was a lo- hard lesson for me because my strong belief was it's nothing new under the sun. Everything we're doing is just a digital version of ancient human behaviors. As it turns out, no things change when you can connect a billion people together. That is actually new, yeah. and there is actually not precedent, and we don't actually know how to do that. And so we've been building societies for a long time. There are ten thousand years of how to build a community. But those parts we throw away, right? Because you would never allow people to walk into the, the lobby of your office building and shot epithets at your employees. Yet Google does that every day in the comments on YouTube, right? And you're like, well, why don't you just em- employ the same rules you know, that, you, that you would in any ordinary physical space, in the digital mm-hmm. space, and all of a sudden it seems impossible. And that, those patterns of like, we refuse to learn the parts that are applicable, and we are not good at identifying the parts that are brand new, Right. And so that's where that's the underpinnings of the ignorance, and then we don't have even the language to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And and so it isn't like I said, it's not malice, but this you know probably young person, probably the first election they've ever reported on, and probably excited about 
we can make this engaging and compelling. Right, the words we use, like engaging, compelling, <laughs> engaging, and compelling, yeah. and 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 and, in, yeah. and inside the industry, they talk about like sticky eyeballs. Like it's yeah. this very weird, like Halloween nightmare kind of language. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, and and like you're like, I don't want it to sound like a haunted house. I want it to sound like journalism. Yeah. And 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 yet, what you're talking about is you are ratcheting up the the stress level and the false emotional engagement of people, and that is the requisite to their business model. Hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Anil Dash, the entrepreneur and activist for humane technology. We're in a public event held at the Avalon Theater in Easton, Maryland. Um, should we talk about Facebook, or is that like going down a rabbit hole? I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what is it? A billion people around the world? More than that. More than that. That's mm-hmm. a, that is you're right. That is just so many. And so again, it's like, you know, I, when I was preparing for this, I was like, I don't usually have interviews where we talk about a company. Yeah. But this is more than just a company. This is a human potential yeah, that yeah. is at the at, in right now embodied in Facebook. But mm-hmm. who knows if Facebook will be around ten years from now? Mm-hmm. But the capacity to to have the attention. Of a billion people. Yeah, it's um, it's profound. I think uh, when we were, when I started blogging in 1999, I was talking to people that were building the early social networking, social media tools, and uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine saying, "You know, someday." Well, the, at that time I started, I was like, "There's like 50 or 100 blogs," and I'm like, "I'm late, right? <laughs> like somebody's taking all the good ideas." <laughs> Um, and then the other hundred million showed up and I think maybe I was early <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah. and that was true with social networks was, um, the first time I met Mark Zuckerberg, he came to visit the company I was working at in San Francisco and, uh, Facebook was, I don't know, six people and they were at a couple colleges and he wanted to meet one of the guys on our team who had built a big social network, which had a million users. And, um, and I was like, you know, he seems smart and, uh, See, I know, I know what I'm talking about, and uh, uh, but also I was like, but it's not. It didn't seem that interesting, right? It was like, well, I don't care what like a private Ivy League club does. I never have, uh, and that's what it was. It was explicitly a private right. Ivy League club, and those values sort of permeated it. And maybe they've, you know, left some of that behind, but not all of it, in terms of who it was designed for mm-hmm. versus who can use it, and. Um, I think that because they're in uncharted territory, unprecedented territory, it's hard to know when they're making good choices and just choices. And no one can anticipate the way that network effects play out at that scale because no one's ever done that before. Right. And I, I, keep, I keep stumbling over one sort of anecdote. It's got two sides to it. Um, one is the ongoing and very... Um, uh, important industry discussion we're having in tech around inclusion and diversity yeah. and who gets to participate and who gets to profit. And the Facebook's numbers look uh, essentially like most of the companies in Silicon Valley, which is to say in California, which you presumably know the demographics of, uh, they um, regularly have the technical staff of these companies be less than 2% uh, black or less than 2% Latino workers. Right, and forty percent of Californians are right. Latino. Right, so it's a it's a huge huge disconnect. And for many years, the conversation has been, well, the pipeline's not there, and you don't have enough people graduating from CS programs. And the the moment I started to realize, 
that there was something really truly amiss even beyond that was when you looked at the the marketing staff or the legal staff or the administration staff the non-technical roles of these companies okay. and the same thing was true okay so they didn't they weren't in need of the same new pipeline right you can't yeah. tell me there's no black lawyers in california you can't tell me there's no latina marketers in california yeah. right the, i know them i've met them they're just not in your company yeah. and um and then, you know, a few years ago, there started to be a little more sort of banging the drum about it, and all the companies, Google and Facebook, and everybody said the right thing. We care about this. We invest in this. We want to do better. And I think, again, well-intentioned. I don't question anybody's intentions. Um, at the same time, Google, Facebook, and sort of a dozen, more than a dozen, are the biggest tech companies in the Valley. I'm oh, sorry, not Facebook. I, want, I don't want to falsely include them. Google, Apple, and others um, illegally colluded against their own employees to keep them from being able to seek out employment at the other companies in this agreement. Mm-hmm. Facebook did refuse to participate, and they should be commended for that. But Steve Jobs essentially orchestrated this at the time of the most heightened competition between the iPhone team and Google's Android team. So they're saying, this is our sworn enemy in the market. By the way, I'm going to work with their leaders to make sure you can't go get a job over there. And essentially cheated their employees out of billions of dollars. The case was settled. The lawyers got lots of money. The employees didn't get much. Nothing really changed. The striking thing to me was, and I, obviously these are privileged employees. I mean, these people are well-paid and they have mm-hmm. nice free candy at work and all that stuff. But yeah. they do. That's, that's not a joke. They have candy. Um, the, the thing that was striking to me was because they had mostly gone to, through computer science education, they probably had very little background in the labor movement in America. And I don't, What's stunning is none of these companies, as powerful as these employees were, as wealthy as they were, none of them had a successful unionization effort afterwards. None of the workers organized, even after being cheated of billions of dollars in wages. Mm-hmm. And um, that stuck with me, right? Because that was at the same moment as the companies were starting to talk about, we need to cast a wider net and have more employees. So that's the first part of the, the Facebook story to me about their reckoning with who they are and who profits from what they do. And the second part was um, WhatsApp, which um, is incredibly popular, maybe the most popular messaging app in the world. Um, I use it to talk to my family in India. Most, most of the rest of the world uses it a lot more than the States, but um, it's an incredibly popular messaging platform. And Facebook understood its value because it was the thing that's used by the rest of the world. And uh, they bought it at the time when the team was maybe 20 people building WhatsApp. It was you know, a very, very small team. They bought WhatsApp for uh, when it ended up being over $20 billion, $22 billion when the deal closed. Um, and, and a board seat for the founder. He's on the board of Facebook now. And he's a very smart guy, very incredible team. Uh, and the decision to make that purchase, even though Facebook's a publicly traded company and all these things, happened in about four or five days. So when Mark Zuckerberg cares about something and Facebook cares about something, mm-hmm. they can deploy 20-plus billion dollars in less than a week. And they keep saying they care about diversity and inclusion in hiring. And I don't believe it. I think it would look like a billion dollars, at least. And maybe it would take three weeks. Mm-hmm. But... That's, that's the scale of what it looks like when they really want to move on something mm-hmm. and they really want to deploy their resources and commit to it. And um, I think that's the, that's the urgency that I, I, I feel like 
we need to make them understand. Well, one, like, I want to save Mark Zuckerberg from himself. He is missing the opportunity to Facebook to reach its full potential by not including everybody in its creation and its mm-hmm. design mm-hmm. and in being amongst those who profit and benefit from it. And I, I want the rest of the world to be able to see that there are moral choices happening even at the structural level about that company that are the reason that the features fail us. And, um, the reason that what fails us? That the features that they build fail us. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, that they don't accommodate all of us. That they, mm-hmm. I think a lot about, like early on, they had, you know, you could choose your relationship status, and one of them was it's complicated. <laughs> and I get it. Like, you know, in the Ivy League schools where they were, kids are hooking up with each other and they don't really <laughs> want to commit, and they, they put it's complicated. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. But I think about, like, my parents had an arranged marriage. And so when you have. It's complicated, listed as a relationship <laughs> status. You're pretty clearly declaring, this is not for you, yeah. right? This doesn't right. apply to right. you. Um, right. And so that was, and that was a minor thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, it took mm-hmm. them years to be able to accommodate different gender identities um, on your profile page for yourself, to accommodate the different ways people represent their names, basic parts of identity. And it's because mm-hmm. it didn't mm-hmm. impact the people making those decisions. Yeah, right. Well, um, You've written a lot also about um, how echo chambers emerge from the algorithms Mm. on Facebook. And of course, um, this is very much on our minds after the 2016 election. We refer to echo chambers now also as bubbles. Um, And 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 there's some logic to this that, that, that human, we as creatures have a tendency to cluster among like-minded people and seek news that confirms our biases. Um, and Facebook has its own research that shows that the company's algorithm encourages this. I, um, I, uh, do, you, do, you, do you read Seth Godin? Do you follow yeah. him? Yeah. yeah. So, Seth, so Seth Godin is a kind of mentor to me and um, to a lot of good people and um, He's in the. He's been in tech like you a long time mm-hmm. before it was what it is, um, and he wants to insist that uh, one thing that sets our generation, I'm, by which I mean all of us, apart from mm-hmm. previous generations of humans, is that we do not have that we can we can create our own tribes beyond bloodline and geography. Mm-hmm. That that is one thing that. Uh, Technology makes possible for us. I just I want to okay. know how you um, do you do you also see that as something that this technology makes possible? Do you see this happening? And, and, and you know how do you think through how we navigate yeah. the danger of bubbles and then this amazing capacity this gives us to walk out of them? The communities of affinity that form on the internet are the greatest thing about it. You know, you can say, I mean, for me, it was no surprise. I was like 19. I found the online Prince community of other crazy fans. And, right. um, and some of those people I've known for decades now, right? And seen us all like grow up and have families and um, after his passing, come back together and, and grieve together. And, uh, um, and that was, that's been profoundly meaningful. Those, those are some of the most consistent presences in my life. As the people I met through this, you know, what is essentially just like pop fandom, like it's, you know, it it could have been very, very superficial and it ended up being very meaningful and, and people have that around their knitting. They have that around, you know, they like pug puppies. They have that around like whatever 
um, their, their interest is, and it, what, what you find is there are communities where they gather online, and it can be literally like, we like this kind of dog, yeah. and there will be a forum about family and a mm-hmm. forum about uh, you know, how, to, how to tackle some ordinary task in your life. And so it, it's just the entry point through which they connect, right. but all the richness of their human lives follows mm-hmm. behind. Mm-hmm. Because they've made that connection, and, and that it point. can also be around service, right? It can absolutely. Be around, it can be around social justice, and yeah, yeah, and issues action. are absolutely, yeah. And so, so there are. That was the thing that drew me to the, the the sort of the internet era. Like I liked computers, but for half my life, the computer wasn't plugged into anything. You know, it was sort of this island, and right. then and then it right. sort of woke up once it got connected to other people. <laughs> got conscious. Yes. Yeah. 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 The the. I mean, I, it, it's hard to explain to like the young people I mentor in the tech industry now, like that we had computers that didn't have the internet right. and they're like, what would yeah. you do with it? Right. Yeah. You know, like I don't, what do you, yeah. what is, you just stare at it. Yeah. You know, it's like a yeah. TV that doesn't have like an antenna or cable. Yeah. Like, what do you do with that? <laughs> just like bask in the rays. And, um, and that's what we did. And, and so that, that was, um, this interesting thing is having been around before it, it shows you kind of, it lets you see the outlines, right? That the the you know, the fish that's in the water can't see the water, right? And we we were like we were able to be a fish out of water briefly, and then plunged into it. And um, right. that perspective is hard to to share. And I think that's the reason why we can't disentangle the positive aspects of finding an affinity community from the the bubble effects and the the sort of sequestering ourselves from. Um, alternative views or from from um, corrective influence, mm-hmm. and the problem is actually it does fall back to the technology in some ways mm-hmm. because so it is a both and right it's, yeah okay yeah, yeah very much so yeah. when when you build a you know a chat room or a a, a, a group chat mm-hmm. for people to have a conversation about a topic from an implementation standpoint of the technology we're agnostic whether it's we're going to share a bunch of false information about the current mm-hmm. political situation, or we're going to talk about pug puppies, right? Like those are implementation-wise are the mm-hmm. same, right, right. and we would treat them the same. That yeah. was our very, you know, that was part of defending our neutrality as technologists. Yeah. And um, I would say far less than 10% of the people creating these tools today think that they should distinguish between the uses of these social tools um, as to whether they're being used for constructive purposes or destructive purposes. Mm-hmm. And what they're afraid of is a lot of things. I think one is the, well, who are we to judge? Right? We don't want to presume. And I'm like, you're not humble. Like the tech industry, <laughs> the, like the false modesty of the tech industry is the most ridiculous argument that they start with. Because, um, you know, at the same time, they're like, we're here to change the world. Right. right? We're going to put right. rockets on Mars right. and make self-driving cars, but we don't want to presume too much. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And and so the that's the sort of like the starting point, and then they get into it's really hard and it takes people, right? And it's like as it turns out, yes, yeah, it does. It takes yeah. human judgment, and you have yeah. to you have to say where you sit, and you have to make a call, and you have to make some people angry because they didn't get to be jerks on your platform. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a you know that takes a little. It's not even that much courage, like mm-hmm. to be like we're gonna whatever ban the Nazis on our platform. It's not actually that hard a call to make mm-hmm. and yet it still takes on average a large social network about 10 years to reach the point where they do that i mean and that's even stopping short of saying we are going to 
uh, encourage generative relationships, yes. Yes. right? Robust civic, civic, you know, not not just everybody being nice and banning right. bad voices, right. but something that's robust where there, where difference is being engaged or explicitly designing for good behavior. Right. I mean, that's the other thing is to encourage. I mean, the furthest they'll go is like you can send a little heart to somebody whose photo you like. Yeah. You, which is nice, but. <laughs> Was it that you? Let me. I just want to find this. You. Um, yeah, I mean, you. You've talked about. Where is it? Um, well, that that yeah. Where is it? So I just. I'm sorry. I want to find this. Um, Yeah, I know it was actually it was right there. Sort of how we measure and what we measure. Yeah. And how um and you know, you've written a lot about you have huge social media following and you've written a lot about like, you know, what that means and what it doesn't mean. Mm-hmm. Um you really in a very searching way. Um and you've suggested that, you know, so numbers, I mean, we all know this, really. We really do all know this. The numbers don't mean everything, but it's very mm. hard to keep that, that uh, cool-headedness about numbers on social media. Um, yeah. But you, um, you know, you've said, could we have metrics about how we're presenting, about whether we're listening, about whether we're mm-hmm. showing gratitude. Like, could we, could we decide some, and, and when we, we could do this with social psychology, right? We could use science. We, yeah. could, we, could, we could use science that's out there about what makes for healthier, happier lives that affect the world around them positively. Mm-hmm. And y- you're suggesting that we could Azure, that, that these platforms could actually give us feedback on those things. Yeah, you know, for, for years I was building a tool um, with a, a friend of mine, Gina Trapani. We actually built a company around it that didn't really succeed, but that we had built this um, tool that let you see really how you were interacting with people online and how often you congratulated somebody or thanked somebody, um, how often you amplified the voice of somebody that had a, a smaller platform than you did, how often you... We, 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 we sort of conceptualize a lot of generative behaviors, a lot of positive behaviors, uh, a lot of sort of good civic behaviors, how many times you apologized, and, um, and would just recognize it, give it back to people, show them this is what you did, and um, this is how you're progressing, and, and um, gentle correctives about, like, well, you've, you've um, uh, talked about yourself a lot, right? Like, how, what, percentage, what percentage of all the things you've shared on Facebook or Twitter were about yourself and you saying I versus somebody else. And, um, and not prescriptive. We didn't say, like, don't do this. It's like, if we hold up a mirror, what do you see? And what's your judgment about it? And um, we ended up with <laughs> not a very large base of users, but a very, very dedicated base of users. I mean, the people that were using the tool, um, I mean, the emails I got were incredible. And it was one of the things we'd spent a lot of time on was um, a look back. So what were you doing a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? And, uh, and then you know, the tricky things that come out and we spend a ton of time thinking about, which I think is part of why Facebook and others who made similar features screwed it up even worse than we did, was we would do things like mention somebody you had spoken to last a year ago and say, you know, do you want, you know, at first it was like, do you want to get back in touch with Jim? You haven't talked to him in a year. And... 
really quickly before we even put it out in front of the users, we're like, we can't do that. It has to be, isn't it amazing how time flies? Was how we described it. Because sometimes uh, somebody who did want to be reminded, get back in touch with that person. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they hadn't spoken to them for a reason. Mm -hmm. And there was a a lot of weight behind that. Sometimes the person had passed away. Hmm. And, uh, And we started diving into all these really interesting human areas. And then I kept thinking... Well, and our team, I mean, essentially for most of the time, it was just me and my friend building this. And then um, later we had a couple of people join us and we had you know, open source where everybody can participate. We had outside contributors coming up with these things. But it was a very small number of people working on it. And I thought, you know, if five of us stumbled across all these interesting, deeply human, emotionally engaging moments that are happening on these social networks, how come nobody at Facebook is talking about this? Why didn't they build any of this? And they did later start to. Twitter started to build some of this. Facebook started to build it. They would, you know, Facebook built it like a year in review, look back. Yeah. And the first time, you've seen this, and the first time it launched, um, uh, uh, an old friend of mine who's, uh, who had lost his daughter uh, said this was the photo that got the most comments this year. And it was uh, uh, after she had passed, you know, at the end of that year when he sort of, just starting to process it, it put her image back in front of him. And um, it, it stayed with me for a long time because it was uh, eminently preventable. It was uh, uh, a real harm visited upon a good man for no reason by an organization that had more than enough resources to not do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, and again, they mean well and, and Facebook did respond and, you know, sent him a um, thoughtful apology, which I think was sincere. I don't, I'm not saying this is, these are bad people doing bad things. I'm saying this is, these are good people doing bad things. Mm -hmm. And, um, with a really powerful, very unformed, in fact, very unformed tool. Yeah. And, and, and I, I have to think they could have anticipated it. And I think there's going to be that over and over and over. There are a lot of those mistakes to make. Are you, Part of a larger conversation. Do you feel that this reckoning is happening, or perhaps that this recent election will spur it on? Um, there is a larger industry conversation about inclusion and diversity, and I can tell it's working because it's starting to be co-opted, right? So the every 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 tech CEO is giving lip service to it, whether they they're sincere or not. So I was like, okay, that's a mark of success to some degree. The, the idea about more thoughtful, ethical, humane technology, a lot of us care about. I think there is a, a groundswell. And I see this in the response to what I write, to what Dana Boyd writes, to what Eric Meyer, who was the father I was talking about earlier, he writes a lot of, a lot of people writing thoughtful work. Um, but what's telling to me and what's been very instructive is I've looked at um, some of these larger social movements and moral movements. Like I look at the success of... Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, and it's self-organizing. People can identify and be part of something larger than themselves without it being um, conducted by someone, right? And and so they can say, I'm I'm declaring a value, and in the the shortness of a hashtag, you know... Extraordinary. You know, what my values are. And, And we don't have a hashtag. We don't have a name for a movement. We don't have a shorthand way of articulating, well, when I say this... Or that I support this, you know that it represents this larger idea of cult in culture, mm-hmm. and and I and I don't know how to get there. I don't. I wouldn't presume that I can, you know, 
be part of creating that. But I think when it arises, all the people who have this latent intention about being thoughtful about what technology can be uh, will rally behind it. But I, I keep looking, you know, I'm, I'm always like, where is the brash 23-year-old creator who scares the hell out of me, who makes me feel like I'm old and out of touch and I don't get it? And, like, I know they're coming, right? I know that person's coming, and I know they're going to have the galvanizing, you know, name and idea for this to be able to coalesce it. But For, um, this, for this shaping technology to human purposes, shaping the technology enterprise... Yeah, I think for, for remaking the tech industry, for mm-hmm. reforming it around being more ethical and humane, I think this is one of the most important missions uh, around. I, I just think uh, because we have subsumed decision-making from media, from policy, from culture, from art, into the tech world, yeah. and we are influencing it. When we make the box bigger, the text gets bigger. Um, <clears throat> Because we have that responsibility, then the urgency with which we have to address our moral failings is that much higher. Mm. Uh, You've asked publicly, what is meaningful about all this time we spend online? (laughs) What will we have to show for it? I think a lot of us are asking that question. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to be a computer scientist to ask that question. No. (laughs) Helps if you're not. (laughs) I wonder how... Becoming a parent, you said your son is five now, right? Mm. Has intensified, shaped the work, way you're working with these questions, this kind of soul searching. Um, it's interesting. I uh, so I've been blogging for what seventeen years. Um, it takes eight or nine years to get really good at it, and at ten years in, I realized I was going to be doing it the rest of my life. This was years before my son was born, and I started to think about. If I have a kid someday, what would they see? Mm. Mm. Um, and almost immediately it changed things. You know, um, it made me grow up a lot real quick. Um, and part of it was wanting to be worthy of my words living on. I mean, I think there's a real, there's a, actually a shocking ephemerality to what's happened on the Internet. Um, most of the things that have ever been published on the Internet are now gone. And that's a weird realization because it's a young medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, I, I want to I fight for, one, preserving my words and those of others, and two, I want to be worthy of preserving them. Um, and, you know, we don't build the tools that way. And I think, actually, there's a very strong argument for tools that are ephemeral by design. I think having things that are designed to be short-term and just disappear is great, and we should mm-hmm. not rush to capture everything. I mean, there's a weirdness to... You know, ordinary conversation being sort of preserved in stone, too. Um, but some of this, some of the, what's there is meaningful and, and it's useful for reflection. I think that's been the most powerful tool for me is to go back at something I wrote five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and see what was right and what was wrong. Um, and, and it's different at least from my perspective, than journaling or a diary would be. Right. Previously, you would have a diary, but it would still be in a closet, and no one else would ever have seen it or would ever see it. Well, yes, and there was also, you think, you know, you look at uh, any of you who've read the sort of, you know, letters between the founding fathers, they had a awareness that these would live on beyond them, right? So it's, it's a, um, mm. 
it's correspondence. It's nominally private, mm-hmm. but it's got a sort of winking eye to the fact that this will be having an audience after in their absence, yeah. which is a really interesting form of writing. And I think yeah. it's that for me is not in the founding father sense, but in the how you write sense is very parallel to me because um, I write generally from a very personal place. I'm on my own and I'm not, you know, I'm in a room on my own and there's no one around it. Um, but with the idea that the sort of shadow that it casts, a million people could see. Um, sometimes, I mean, the most popular things I've written have been in that range. And um, and it's a very strange thing. I think it's very different than... And I, I, I briefly wrote for a, um, Wired magazine, and that was a... It was very, very hard for me, actually. Um, one, because in print, you apparently can't like just put funny videos and, and cat pictures in there. Um, they don't let you do that. And two was the idea, and, and it, I think a really hard part was that it was edited, right? So it was like, this isn't... <laughs> yeah, this you isn't, weren't used to that. I had never, yeah. I'd written a million words and never been paid and never been edited before right. I got my Wired column. Right. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'm getting paid. And then I was like, oh, they pay you because they change what you wrote. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, uh, that was like, wow, that, yeah, yeah. You, gotta, you gotta compensate me for that. Um, <laughs> And, and it, it, I had terrific editors. I mean, they're yeah. incredible, but I just, I had never considered that um, I would have my shortcomings thrown in my face so vigorously. Um, and, so, and so it made really clear why I loved this other medium and why I loved writing for the, mm-hmm. the web. Mm-hmm. Like, that was my place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was what, you know, my voice was suited to. But also, because of that idea that that was where it was going to live, right? That was the, the permanence was the... Um, this home I'd made for now, I mean, I don't know, two million words that I've written over the last mm. almost 20 years. And that, that was a really, I mean, I think I, I started to realize just out of sheer stubbornness of having done that for so long that this would be more than anything the artifact of my life. Um, and that, uh, that made me try to be a little bit better at self-editing. Mm. So my, my children are right now 18 and 22. And even in those four years... You know, there was such an acceleration, yeah. and it was interesting also in terms of the platforms that they and their friends use. Completely totally different shifted. tools, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm actually, I find myself being really grateful that that I'm not uh, parenting. So I was, I was, we were still in that window where I could say, "No, you will not have a, an iPhone until you're 14 or something," mm-hmm. which I mm-hmm. just, I don't think you can do anymore, right? And no. They were so they were already kind of formed before all the technology entered their lives and I know it's changed so much now in the meantime mm-hmm. and you have a five year old I mean I wonder how, how are you thinking about that question we, we don't have a very intelligent cultural conversation about how kids engage with technology at no. all no um, I think it's like a guinea pig generation yeah well it's also um I always think of the concept of screen time. Anyone with young kids has heard this, right? They're like, wow, do you limit your child's screen time? And I was like, no, I, you know, I, I engage with what he's specifically doing. Like, I don't limit his page time. Mm-hmm. I just choose whether, like, he's reading a book or a magazine or whether it's something that's, like, a bunch of, like, you know, he's five years old, so he likes poop jokes. But, like, you can, like, how much of that and how much of, like, smart stuff? Yeah. Um, and so, like, the idea that they're both on pages and are therefore equivalent is absurd. And yet we talk about screen time that way. I'm like, is he playing chess on the iPad? Or is he like watching funny YouTube videos of animals falling over, right? Which right. is also awesome, but different. Right. And, and so that really, that always sticks with me because I think it's a very, 
unsophisticated way to look at things. And then we carry that forward. And that's when they're very, very young, right? Two, three, four, five. Um, they first start seeing screens. And, you know, and my son maybe spends 15 minutes a day on the iPad. And he loves it. And that's all he gets. But that's mm-hmm. always been the rule for him, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I limit it mostly because we just limit everything. I mean, you just don't let a five-year-old do whatever they want or you end up in hell. Right, so you just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's just... Amazing. So, okay, this is a radical idea. You apply the same wisdom you apply to other things, to yeah. technology? Yeah. Well, that's... well and that's the thing. It's, like, it's part of your life. I think that right. was the thing. Is I, I saw so many parents, and this is not like judgment. I don't judge other parents. Other parents are no, fine. No, we're all on this frontier. But, but as we're figuring it out, they yeah. treat it as if there is life. They said, it's like, this is real life, and then there's computer world. Right. And I'm like, that's not the thing. Like, that's not how their lives are going to be. Yeah. And, and, I think, and I think I had an unusual perspective in that I did start using computers you know, before I was in kindergarten, just as my son has. And um, he is, you know, he has way better programming tools. I was like, gosh, if I had these things, like he's got, because we had to do these like, you know, primitive blocky green graphics on the screen when I was a kid. And he's got like a Star Wars robot that he can go on the iPad and give it programming instructions and it follows his directions to roll around the living room. And I'm like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like you wait until they go to bed so you can play with it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's no, he's going to listen to this. I bet. So I don't do that. I don't do that. Um, but the, the, the thing that I, I think about is the, um, that's part of his life. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, over there. It's not an artifice. It's not the virtual world, right? It's just life. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about that with so many experiences where when we were fighting for, validating social media and social networking, saying these would be important, these would be part of our lives, and there's a reason to include it. It was about this idea that sharing makes something better. I I fully reject the argument. People say this all the time. You know, I saw this young person in a restaurant on their own, on their phone, not interacting with anyone. What do you think they were doing? They were talking (laughs) to people. (laughs) They were interacting with lots of humans all at once. Yeah. And it makes me furious because I'm saying they're being deeply social. It's not in the mm-hmm. mode that you know, mm-hmm. but it's actually better than when they were sitting alone in the diner with a book. Yeah. Right. And and like I I just I think there's been this misunderstanding and this misapprehension mm-hmm. about what the tech is doing. It is connecting us to people, and and you know there's so much attention paid in with good reason to the bullying and the other things, the cyberbullying and all this. And a general rule of thumb is anything that begins with cyber is a lie. Right. Like if you say cyberbullying or cybercrime, like it was probably that's one of those rare areas where they it's a behavior that existed before and the cyber is not the issue. Right. So children right. being unkind Nothing to each other. Nothing happens online that doesn't happen offline. Right. And yeah. so and so being able to integrate it. Now, it can be worse because of the network effects. Mm-hmm. It could be amplified mm-hmm. by the immediacy and the fact mm-hmm. that it happens in your home. But the principles can carry across and it has to be an integrated conversation. And that's the right. that's the key. It's like. How much time do you limit your fr- your child talking to their friends? I don't care if it's on the phone, on the on the computer, on messaging, on their on you know on on in real life, in in person, out in public, whatever it is. If you have a set of rules, they apply across these things. But that demands a literacy and a fluency that I think is takes a serious investment in time and understanding your child's context, and that's the hard part. Yeah, that is hard, but I think. At least we should aspire to it. Yeah, yeah, it's worth yeah. the work. Um, and we're we're coming to a close, and there's so much else we could talk about. <laughs> um, this matter of 
technology and social healing, technology and weaving common life. Um, when I see you writing about this, I see one thing you do, which is again related to what you just said, is you point people to analog places close to home. Yeah, I try. Mm-hmm. We, we're still you know, sounding our way through this incorporation of technology into our lives. And there are historical analogs for a lot of these things. There are things we can look back at. And the, and the trick is to identify where, where does the analog apply and where is it irrelevant. And, and that line keeps shifting, especially as we learn more about the behaviors. I think, um, you know, it always does come down to what are our values and what do we care about and what are the things we think are meaningful. And then using that as a filter to understand and, and control and make decisions around these new technologies but um, those of us in the tech world have not done ordinary folks any favors around making those decisions because we've um, adopted this stance that values don't apply. And we have tried to weasel our way out of every one of those conversations so that when somebody does come to have that conversation, we either shut it down or avoid it. And um, that's, that's part of the reckoning I'd ask everybody who's not in technology to have is to... Um, is to raise that flag, right? At the time when somebody says, you got to try this new app, you got to use this new tool, um, think through what are the implications of, one, me using this, but two, if everybody does. You know, I, I look at, um, and I don't know, just pick one out of a hat, like Uber, right? And a lot of people are like, oh, you should try Uber and it'll get you a car service. And it's something I've thought really deeply about living in New York, uh, being of Indian descent in particular, like what happens to taxi drivers is very personal to me and we have a community in Queens, Jackson Heights where it's an um, enormous number of uh, South Asian immigrants and somewhere, I, I don't remember the number, it was like 20% or something of households make some of their income from driving right, and livery drivers, taxi drivers and you know there were a lot of obviously like the taxi industry is also corrupt in its own way, right, so like mm, not yeah. diminishing the challenges there but that you know, Uber has said, we're going to bring you in, make you a driver, and have essentially full control over what your income is and how many fares you get using an algorithm that's opaque to you is terrifying. And then once they got the drivers on board, there are now more Uber drivers in New York City than there are yellow cabs. They said, by the way, we're going to wow. replace you all with self-driving cars as fast as we can. Um, and that's going to happen. And in the interim, they're like, well, if you still want to make the fares you were making, you should move up to being a black car, not an ordinary taxi, but the sort of, you know, the town cars. And here's the three or four approved models. And if you want one of those, uh, we'll give you a um, subprime predatory loan from Uber itself in order to get the car. <laughs> what could go wrong? Nothing. And, um, and, and the interesting thing, in the terms of some of those leases um, for, the, for the cars go past the end of this time period when they said they're going to replace them with self-driving cars. So you're going to end up with drivers still paying Uber even after they're not driving for Uber um, because they've been replaced by the self-driving car in this neighborhood where, like I said, significant percentage of them are making their income from driving. What's going to happen there? Right? And this is a, a, you know, a, a crash we can see coming. Right? That's the one we know, we anticipate. Mm-hmm. The same thing with self-driving tractor trailers. Right? We've got 3 million people driving a rig in this country, 3.5 million, something like that. And the current, the entire, you know, economy around 
the companies that control those drivers is about efficiency on the road. Right? So every bathroom break is an argument for why you need a self-driving tractor trailer. Fortunately, what you're asking people to do is think. Yeah, but but these and these are like the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and that's it. And these are off the top of my head, right? These are yeah. the ones on the tip of my tongue. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, s- s- yeah. So, and I've talked over the years. I've had conversations with people like Sherry Turkle and Dana Boyd and mm-hmm. and uh, other people, um, mm-hmm. Tiffany Schlein. You know, mm-hmm. this idea that. Um, it's very hard for us to internalize because mm-hmm. we feel like this technology has landed on us and taken over our lives, mm-hmm. permeated, and it has. It but has we have permeated. a choice, and our right. choices matter. And, that the, and to, to, to internalize that, that this technology is in its, in its infancy and we are the grown-ups in the room. Yes, yes, 100%. It is 100% up to us. It doesn't feel like that, but it's true. It doesn't. And we can ask those questions, right? Mm-hmm. When, when somebody says, try out this new app, it doesn't take very long to say, well, how does it work? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. And not in a fearful way, not in a you know, terrified way. No, but to be able to say, what, what are the yeah. implications here? And, and to ask around. Because there are people who know. There are people starting to raise these questions. Mm-hmm. And we can Google for them for now, um, unless Google's making the app. And we can, <laughs> you can kind of raise our hands and say, well, what happens if this works? Everybody in the Valley, they get their company funded. They make a startup. And they say, well, you know, we want to, desperately don't want to fail. And I'm like, I'm not worried about the failures. I'm worried about the companies that succeed. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be the obligation of the rest of us that care about these issues to really deeply interrogate that whenever we can. Mm-hmm. Um, your um, wildly successful Twitter feed, <laughs> your, 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 Adil Dash, is, your name is Rap Game Bodhi Rook? Right now it is, yeah. It changes okay. a lot. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I, but I love your, um, you know, you, you just say in your profile, I love reading Twitter po- profiles. I think mm. that is such a beautiful slice of humanity. Mm. Um, at least the ones I read. Um, <laughs> trying to make tech a little bit more humane and ethical. Um, I once interviewed a French geophysicist, who, one of the people who discovered tectonic plates. Mm. And he pointed out that the word human in French is the same as the word humane. Mm. I don't know why I thought of that when I was reading this. I, um, hmm. I want to ask you how your, this life you've lived, these, uh, these obsessions you have, which mm-hmm. I think everybody in this room is grateful you are out there having these obsessions. Um, how, 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 how would you start to talk about how this has evolved the way you think about what it means to be human, humane? Mm. What, what does that mean? Um, you know, I describe myself as being in the technology industry, but technology always means things invented after you're, you know, born, basically. Um, and so there was a time when the technology industry was the wheel, right? And there was a time when the, the technology industry was fire, and, and it's every iteration along the way has been, you know, the first people to do agriculture were the technologists of their time. And so understanding that context of this is only temporarily new um, has been really, really helpful for me. And I think, um, and I, I guess especially true again since becoming a parent, but just in general, the, like marveling at the, the briefness of the time we have, um, and I think how lucky, right, to be at this genesis moment for something actually new. Mm-hmm. Right? How rare to be at a time when things changed. Um, even with all of the 
negatives that come and all the hard problems that come. And all the risk there always is there when change yeah. comes. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 of course, I know how fortunate I am to be on the, the right side of those mm-hmm. changes. I think, um, you know, my parents are from one of the poorest and most remote parts of India. My dad's village today, a family of four around that area, lives on between six and $800 a year. Mm-hmm. And um, and I used to, we would go back, even though I was born in the States, we would go back and live there you know, for months at a time as a kid with no running water, no electricity, uh, no certainly no phone, no communication. And um, I think the quality of life improvement from my father growing up as a British subject with no vaccines and no clean running water to my son living in Manhattan is perhaps the greatest single generation leap in quality of life in the history of humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that weighs on me a lot, right? To be the, to be bookended by these two incredible people, like my parents on one end and my son on the other. um, It it feels like a grave responsibility, Mm -hmm. right? To get to be the conduit between, um, you know, the greatness of what my parents have done and the greatness my son will do. I think is the the thing I think about every day, mm-hmm. right? So it's well, I have these tools, and and they're novel now, and they will be boring very soon, you know. And so, on route to them being boring, how can I be sure that they are just? Mm-hmm. When you yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to ask you finally. I, I feel like the word community, hmm. the notion of community, is something that is fundamentally being reshaped by our technologies. How, how do you think, what, you know, what, what for you, what, what is community? How do hmm. you? Um, I've fallen back in love with the idea of a neighborhood. Um, I've been in the East Village in New York for 20 years, basically. And, uh, and I'm there because I still feel the way I felt the first moment I got there, which is, oh, this is where I was supposed to be. And so, you know, I do a lot of work with the organizations in the neighborhood and, and, and just the fact that the guy at the cheese shop knows my son and like, you know, the barber has seen him from his first haircut till the one before he, you know, started kindergarten, all those things, um, tie me there. And that's a really deep meaning of community. Mm -hmm. I think the, you know, the virtual communities, the communities of interest online, I, I am trying to take more seriously and not let them be trivialized or diminished because they're online because it's like there are th- people I connect with around values, around ideas, around art, around things that matter to me. Um, and I take that very, very seriously. And then I think there's the, you know, the idea, like the things that used to be abstract, like, like being part of an immigrant community or a diaspora community. When I was a kid, it was, a, you know, essentially not much more than a label. Like it, it affected the fact that like we grew up bilingual or something like that, but it was just a sort of a, a, a tag to describe me. And in being connected through technology and the internet, it has become something much more daily and substantive to me. Hmm. And um, well, that's, why is that? You know, I, I think well. So you know, the Indian diaspora is as chaotic and disorganized as you would imagine, and we um, like I don't speak Hindi and we never did around the household and so I also felt a little bit distant from the majority of the Indian diaspora that did and, and, yeah. and things like that and what I found was there was a larger community that was in the same 
sort of position that I was, right, in between and, and neither the before or the after. And, you know, all of us had had these, this very narrow slice of common experience, but I had never met them. And so I was able to find my people, you know, through the Internet and say, oh, there's somebody like us that, like, you know, takes goat curry and puts it on pizza. And, you know, this sort of like we are of both, um, you know, was a really kind of revelatory experience. It showed me who I was. And, and that, that sort of evolution of understanding community, and that's in the, I think that's in a very familiar context. Anybody who's part of a, you know, any kind of identity group or ethnic group or something mm-hmm. can understand that. I think um, being able to process that and say that's how all communities are uh, was, uh, was really freeing and reassuring. Hmm. And uh, that's sort of what I'm hoping more communities are rather than the, than being the the mechanism by which we isolate ourselves from one another. Mm-hmm. That's so, such, a, such a fascinating example, though, because if we think of, on the one hand, um, technology has liberated us from having to be defined or even just in relationship with our tribe. Mm-hmm. And then for you to find you know, your tribe, mm-hmm. for that relationship, that identity, to be enhanced and magnified yeah. through technology. It's incredibly powerful. That tribe of geography and bloodline. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one of one of my son's grandparents is Chinese, and so, you know, he has a connection if he goes to Chinatown in Manhattan, and like this is part of him, and that's fine. But you know, just because of the way that Indian immigration happened, there essentially aren't. There's no like Delhi town, and you know, in any big cities, there will be, but there isn't yet. Um, we're good at having kids, and the the thing that always jumps out is like I'm like, well, there doesn't need to be because the the infrastructure they were creating of connecting to each other and being able to support each other can happen in this much more networked way. Um, and, you know, maybe that's enough. Mm. Thank you so much, Anil Dash. Thank and you. thank you, all of you, for coming. <laughs>